0: Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. We are in 1 Chronicles chapter one, starting a brand new book tonight. So as with any of these new books, we have some setup to do. What is 1 Chronicles and why is it here first of all? It's not originally 1st Chronicles, it's just Chronicles, one big, giant, massive scroll. When they made the Septuagint, it got divided into two scrolls. When it got divided into two scrolls, they called one the first scroll and the other one the second scroll, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Um, it is in itself, the word Chronicles in the Hebrew is which means annals or years, or a book of the years, a history recording. It is, in Jewish tradition, a book that Ezra put together. But that's tough to say. Ezra would have been the, the head or the high priest when they came back to resettle the land after their exile to Babylon. So Ezra would have been assembling the book of Chronicles, but he would likely would have been using all of the priesthood and all of the scribes to help him do that. So they would have been using Samuel, Kings, and other sources to make it. That said, for the first time in this Bible study, starting with Genesis 1-1, I'm not going to read every word tonight. If you look at the first eight, nine chapters of Chronicles, you will see why. Um, and here's my thought. We already read these words when we were in Samuel and when we were in Kings. We've read a lot of these. So what I'm going to do is stop at points where there's some differences and things of note. Um, but otherwise, And then the structure of the genealogy to kind of look at that piece. But uh, that is why we're going to get through a number of chapters tonight. Um, is that these are being pulled. It's about 50% of of Chronicles is from Samuel and Kings. About 40% of it comes from the book of Judges, but it also comes from Ruth. There's passages from the Psalms that have been included, and there's passages from various Judean prophets that are part of Chronicles too. So some say that where Samuel and Kings focuses on the Northern Kingdom and what went wrong with the Northern Kingdom, Chronicles focuses on Judah. I think a better way to say it is that Kings focuses on the fall of Israel and Chronicles focuses on what went right with Israel and why they retained the promise. It's the good stuff. So like a parent that kind of forgets some of the bad things their kids have done because they love their kids and they forgave them and they dealt with it, this is kind of a retrospective where a lot of the bad stuff just gets forgotten and it's thrown out. So there's about 10% of the book of Chronicles that's completely original or new to the book of Chronicles. Only about 10% of the book. Um, yet there's references that we see to the book of the annals of the King David um, in 1 uh, Chronicles 27, 24. So it makes reference to books that we don't have in our library. Um, that's not because they weren't written or that's not a fault, it's simply that we, they're not part of our Old Testament Bible. They're, they weren't kept as a prophetic text. In likelihood, they were histories that didn't have as much to do with how God intervened with Israel. What made a book a holy book was that they felt like God was talking to humanity, and this is the record of that interaction. So the Old Testament is always an interaction between God and humans. So is the New Testament, for that matter. So you get some of these history books that just are kind of more secular, and they're not really included in, our, in what the Jews pulled aside to be part of the Torah, part of the Old Testament. So why write this book? If it's already been written, and 90% of it's repeat, why even write Chronicles? This is a question that tortured me through my teens, And my 20s, it seems like a book that why would you add this thing in? If Samuel is the royal history, the beginning of the royal history, King's is the end of the royal history, Chronicles is gathered to provide context for how a restored Israel is still part of the promise of God. Because it would be very easy to think that the promises of God have died with the nation of Israel dying. And as Babylon took over and they hauled everybody off, as the Assyrians took the northern kingdom, Babylon takes the southern kingdom. This is a blueprint for how they're still part of the covenant of old and the promises of God haven't faded. So they're going to really hyper-focus on God's faithfulness in every step of the way and how this kind of Persian delay or offset where Babylon gets taken over by Persia, is actually still God at work. And they're going to point to that pattern of God's interventions. So the best of Israel, the promises of God, all the good things. What they're trying to do with the book of Chronicles is they're trying to convince Jewish people, Hebrews, after 70 years to come back to the Holy Land. So they were happy in Babylon and Persia. Some of them had risen high in rank. Their businesses thrived. They did okay there. God actually blessed them in exile they just didn't have their own land so that's a tough argument to make hey we got a new country that cyrus just granted us we need he- we need hebrew people to leave their homes and come with us but they're two three generations into living in this new land and some of them were doing really well so chronicles you know is not only an argument that god is still with the nation but it's composing kind of a national anthem Like this is who we are. Our identity is not in Persia. Come out of that land and come into something new. So we're going to see that theme throughout the book. In short, this becomes like the national history book. This is the book that they would have used. When we have history textbooks, we take a lot of different sources and we put them all in the same book. And the effort of Chronicles was to write that official national history book and give it to the people of Israel probably why it's in here, even though it's a, a repeat kind of history, is that Chronicles became the book that would document the histories. So in the New Testament, when we see them refer to the histories, they're largely speaking of Chronicles and what they're talking about here. They'll say the law, the prophet, and the histories sometimes. So it does fill gaps. It does combine histories from various sources, but the goal of Chronicles is to make meaning of it all. Where Kings was probably kept up updated with each kingship chronicles was written with kind of a retrospective view and it had a purpose the focus then is going to be you know i'm going to argue there's four major focuses that are going to help to convince people to come back to the holy land give up everything you know in persia and come live in palestine with us come live in this area one is the rebuilding of the temple as the center of the identity the identity can't be the throne of david anymore because the throne of david got ended But the promises of God, Chronicles is going to highlight the building of that temple. They're going to make a big deal out of it with Solomon. They're going to make a big deal out of it in order to rebuild it now. So they're going to to focus on that and not the throne. In other words, David and Solomon weren't as important as the work that they did. They built a temple. God used the throne to build that temple. And now, even though they're a, a vassal of Persia, God's going to use them to build a temple just like he used David and Solomon. So it's, it's, in that sense, it becomes very current. God's plan includes all of history. You look at the first few sentences, we're going to start with Adam here. So we're not going to start with King David. We're not going to start with Samuel. We're going to start with Adam because God's plan has gone through all of these trials. It's part of all of human history up to the point that this was written. God's temple then becomes key for this image of God's plan of salvation for the world. And so the, 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 the richest detail we get in some of that imagery is going to be in this book. All of this helps with the migrations that they're going to have. Worship gets highlighted. Um, They'll refer refer to Israel as being all part of this temple plan. Um, We're going to see all the references that tell us that the people moved to Judah before they went to Babylon are in Chronicles. And the reason for that is they really wanted to point out we haven't lost those 10 tribes. We still have remnants from all 10 of these tribes. They're going to get listed in the genealogies as people that came back with the Israelites. So they didn't lose Reuben, they didn't lose Gad, they didn't lose Asher. All the people that wanted to seek God from those tribes got the heck out of the northern kingdom. And they came to Judah before they were taken to Babylon. So the people coming back to build the temple are going to be all 12 tribes of Israel. And Chronicles will point that out. 2 Chronicles eleven fourteen 14 is going to point out we got our Levites still. 2 Chronicles 15, 9, we still have Ephraim, we even have Manasseh with us. Second Chronicles 30, Hezekiah invites all of the tribes to come and so they're gonna point out again and again and again that all of Israel was participants in the temple worship before exile and they're all gonna participate in rebuilding temple after exile and we'll get to that in Ezra and Nehemiah which we'll go right into after this. Uh, Josiah, uh, Josiah has help restoring the temple from the entire remnant of Israel in Second Chronicles 34 they're going to again and again and again come back to this theme. All of Israel was part of one temple in Jerusalem. It wasn't just Judah. Law and the prophets. Here's another theme. They're now going to be get included together. Chronicles is going to intermix all of these things like it's all one story because it is. So we had to do first second Samuel for second kings and then we went and did Jonah and we did Amos and we did Hosea because they were speaking during that time. Chronicles is gonna reference those prophets a lot closer and a lot more intermixed into what's going on, which helps give a a solid timeline. Um, Faithful kings follow the law and they listen to the prophets. Unfaithful kings don't listen to the prophets. It's not the kingship, it's listening to the prophets. Now if we're coming back out of Israel, what's the prophet saying today? That the exile's over and it's time to go back to Israel. You're gonna be blessed if you come back to Israel? Don't expect to be blessed if you stay in Babylon. So that message is going to be part of Chronicles 2. And again, this is all, I don't want to say propaganda, but they're trying to create a rational argument why they should leave Babylon and come back to Israel. Third major concept, first being the temple and all the people being a part of it. Second being law and prophets brought together. Third is sin. First and second Chronicles will emphasize and highlight how God speaks through judgment. If you're following the Lord, there's a blessing. If you're not following the Lord, there's judgment. That's God's plan. It's been his plan from the beginning. So exile to Babylon didn't end the promises of God. It simply confirms the promises of God. Fourth thing, the promise of Messiah. If we're thinking big picture, it wasn't about having a king, right? So this is, this is their own kind of form of rethinking everything God said in the past, and God never said it was about the king. In fact, he always said the king's gonna get you off track. And when that happens, I'm going to kick you out of the land. He promised all of this. His plan then is for Messiah through David and Solomon, not for a king or a throne that's of the earthly kind through David and Solomon. So that's going to get emphasized through the book too. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah are going to use this book to show the people in Babylon that they need to come with. Not all of the Israelites come with. A lot of them stay in Babylon. So we're going to end Chronicles with more hope of what's coming next. The whole book is designed to set up anticipation. You finish with 2 Kings and you're like, wow, that was a bummer. But you finish with Chronicles and you're like, oh, I can't wait to see what happens next. Like, this is exciting. Like, we are on track for what's going on. So we get a genealogy at the beginning here. (laughs) Can you see I'm procrastinating digging into it? Um, but I hope this sets up all of First and Second Chronicles for you. So the genealogy feeds each of the themes I just talked about. And you see glimpses of each one. That God's plan A was to have this temple be an image of the Messiah coming up. And that's always been it. Second Timothy 3, I want to remind you, all scripture is given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete... Thoroughly equipped for every good work. I think that pastors read that verse every single time we have to start genealogies. This is good for us. It's like our vegetables, right? On the other hand, sometimes vegetables are pretty good. So I get into genealogies and you guys know me. I'm a complete geek, but our missions, we're going to go through the whole Bible. We're going to dig through the whole thing. Today, I'm going to ask you to have your Bibles in front of you so you can lay eyes on every word, even if I don't say every word. Um, But this is a genre within the Bible. Every name, every syllable, all of it is part of the genre. Genealogies serve a few purposes. They're both, in this case, they're civic. So they have to do with who gets land allocations, who gets taxed, who gets constricted into armies, who gets inheritance. All of those are civic issues. They're negotiated through the genealogies for the Jewish people. This is important stuff because it's who's going to inherit the land. So this has to do with all of those things. They're also religious. Like this is how we identify the Levites and which Levites go with which families and how many Levites are going to go with this group of people. They're also religious in that this is the line of David. This is what gets us to Messiah. So in this genealogy, they're going to follow that line of David kind of carefully. As a religious piece, names can be left out. And this is where we put our modern lens on ancient genealogies. Ancient genealogies, people critique them because they leave names out, right? Well, Matthew left this name out and... In Chronicles, we're leaving these names out. The purpose of that is that they're telescoping. They don't really care, right? They're trying to tell a religious story with the genealogies. So skipping here and there is sometimes appropriate because they're storytelling. And with the genealogy, they're trying to say something. And so this becomes a really unique genre of writing that we don't see a lot of today. But the Jewish people invented it, maintained it, and they pretty much are still the holders of the great and wonderful genealogy for all of these purposes. So they're tracking the promises of God and they're noting the people groups around Israel that are important. And there's nine chapters of it in Chronicles. This is the biggest genealogy we get in the Bible. So it's important to understand why we go through it. There's one in Genesis, there's one in Exodus, one in Ruth. Um, In all of those, I got into meanings of names. I'm going to do a lot less of that this time because I did that last time. And if you want to go back and get the meanings of names... other than the first verse, um, you can go back to those teachings and dig through those. It's almost word for word for what you see in those teachings. So they're pulling sources and they're doing it uh, without changing a jot or tittle in most cases. So it starts in verse one. We will dig in. Adam, Seth, Enosh, uh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. Just bam. Why do we start as far back in a Hebrew history? Like Matthew 1 starts with Abraham. Why in the world would you start with Adam? And it's a reminder that they're tracing their history all the way back to the beginning. It goes to that first theme. God's plan went all the way from Adam. It didn't start with Abraham. And it didn't start with David and the kingship. It started with with Adam way before there were ever kings. Chronicles paints this picture of a global plan of God that has to do with not just the Jews, but everybody around them. So in the genealogy, well, we'll get to it, but they're going to include people that aren't Jews in this genealogy, which seems hard to do, but they're going to do it. Um, Note verse 5, they start using genealogy language. So-and-so begot so-and-so, so-and-so begot so-and-so. Do you see that? But here in verse 1, they don't do that at all, do they? It's just Adam, Seth, Enosh. No so-and-so begot so-and-so or any of it. They don't use genealogical language. Why? And I hope you remember from Almost six years ago, when we studied Genesis, the names in Genesis 5 have meanings in the Hebrew. And I I won't do a lot of this, but this was so cool, and it's been six years. It's important to remind ourselves they're telling a story here. The point of the genealogy is to tell a story. And when they list the names like that, each of those names in the Hebrew means something. Adam means man. And so you could read that sentence, and in the Hebrew it actually reads as a sentence when you take out all the begots. When it's just the names, those names all mean something. So let's walk through what they mean. Adam means human or mankind. Seth means substituted, compensated. Enos means mortal man. Canaan means a possession or to occupy something like you would be in a nest. Mahalalel means praise God or blessed be of God. Jared means descent. Enoch means dedicated Methuselah means man of the dart, or when he dies, he'll be sent, literally. When he dies, he'll be sent, man of the dart. Lamak means conquering, and Noah means comfort or rest. You put them together like a sentence, it's the plan of salvation. It's God's plan from the beginning. Humans compensated their mortalness in the possessions that they had through the praises of God who descends and dedicates When he dies, it shall be sent a conquering for comfort and rest. It just reads like a sentence. God's goal has always been to come and deal with our humanity and be the sacrifice for our sins. And it's not a huge stretch that the the writer of Chronicles, if that's Ezra or Ezra's team, wanted that to be known so they take out the genealogical language to tell the story. God's plan's been there from the beginning. Not only that, God plays with time, generations, and names. Like, as parents, we think we're being really creative with names. Well, there's 10 generations where they they thought they were being creative with names, but in their creativity, they actually wrote a story. That's amazing because God's not working through a person. He's working through generations of people. Now, if you're sitting there in Persia nice and fat and happy and comfortable, hmm, well, that's kind of convicting because God's got a bigger plan than what's going on right now. Here's another question with verse 1. Where's Cain and Abel? Well, they just skipped Cain and Abel. Why? Again, we'll see that theme. Chronicles is just going to brush over the nasty stuff. doesn't matter. One's a murderer. One got murdered. They're not part of God's plan. They're a story that tells us some moral truths. But in Chronicles, we're just going to skip that issue. We're going to go right to Seth. Because Seth, we know, is part of the plan. Because it's his children that become the lineage, so to speak. So we're not going to dwell much on sin in Chronicles. It uh, doesn't mean there isn't sin or that it's not important. Um, also, we know that Cain fathered a whole group of people. Like, Cain continued to exist, and there were lots of people that were descendants of Cain, but those people didn't get on an ark. They didn't go to Noah. It's the children of Seth that got on an ark. So if it's not part of that linear kind of piece where they're trying to see what God's plan is for the human, human race, doesn't matter. So verse 4 says, Noah Noah's listed with all three of his sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Because now we get the people of the world. These families make up the planet. These aren't just Hebrews, right? So we get this perspective of planet population, 10 generations from Adam to Noah, which is 1,600 years. From Noah to Jesus, it's 2,400 years. From Jesus to today, it's 2,000 years. That means we've been around this planet around 6,000 years. And, it all, and that's the number of man. So it makes you wonder what the next thousand, the seventh thousandth will look like. Okay, that's enough Chuck, Chuck Missler for tonight. Actually, there'll be more Chuck Missler tonight. We're in, we're, in, we're in genealogies, and that's just the sort of thing that makes you think for a second. So now we get 10 generations from Shem to Abraham. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Japheth were, well, you can read those all through verse six, seven, and we get to Rodanim at the end of verse seven. Those traditions, says, are all of the peoples of Europe and northern Asia. So now we just populated that part of the world. Magog, we're going to see again in Revelation 20, that God will continue to use these family names for regions of the world all the way through the book of Revelation. So when God sees these family groups populating, these are the things he's understanding. Those are the people of Magog, uh, which would be Russia, by the way. Three sons of Noah. So, you get 70 nations that are listed out in Genesis 10, and these come almost word for word from there. The sons of Ham are in verse 8. We get Canaan in verse 13. He he has his kids, and you get the the people of the planet. So, you got Ham listed in there in verse 8. Those are the people of Africa or Far East Asia. You got Cush. That would be later the Upper Nile Africans, which populate the continent of Africa. You also have Sheba listed in there, which would be the Ethiopians. Mizraim, the ancient ancestral name for Egypt, is in there. So you can see how they're just filling the planet with verses 8 through 16. They also list the Philistines. Those are key enemies of Israel. So they're listing groups like this for a reason, because even the Philistines were part of the plan. David having a foil or something to fight against helped to show David's character and courage and heroism. And that would be hard to do without those people. Then you got Nimrod. Uh, they, they point out he began to be a mighty one on the earth, having come out of Babylon. Nimrod is noted, but he's kind of seen as the ancestor of the Babylonians from which they were coming. So it's interesting that they note that history. They call him mighty. They give a nod to him. Uh, in Genesis, when you dig into that deeply, it's not a compliment but here it kind of is a compliment. He became mighty on the earth because they're coming from a country like Babylon, which is mighty on the earth. Verse 13 has Canaan. Again, they're detailing people groups that are driven from Palestine later on. So they're driven from that part of the world. Verse 17, the sons of Shem were Elam, that's Persia. Asher, that's the Assyrians. Arphaxed, we'll get to those in a sec. Lud, which would be the Lydians. Aram, which is the Syrians. Uz, which we know are Job's people. When you read the book of Job, he was Job from the land of Uz. Um, that's not a, a you know, gold, yellow brick road story. That's like where Job's from. Hull, Gather, Meshach. And we get a number of enemies of Israel that are in this list, this genealogy. Our fact set is the Chaldeans. They're important because that's Abraham's people group. So Abraham's people group and Job's people group are listed right alongside these enemies of Israel. That they're all at this point in time, they're all there. But we're gonna follow the line. We get Adam to Noah, Shem to our fact, and we're gonna follow him in verse 18. It goes right to our fact. So they're focusing on Israel clearly, but they're pointing out these other groups as we go down the line. So we get our fact, and then in verse 19, it says Peleg, for in the days the earth was divided. That's a reference to Genesis 11. So if you got notes, you just put Gen 11 next to that. That's the Tower of Babel when the earth was divided as a reference to when all the language groups got put into place. His brother's name was Joktan, which I just think is a great name. Some of these names are phenomenal, and I'm sorry, I'm skipping them. We go down, we get more of these. All of these were the sons of Joktan. Verse 24, then, is a pretty quick summary from Shem to Abraham. So verse 24 sums it up just like verse 1 did. Do you see that? So you got Shem, the son of Noah, Arphaxed, Shilah, Eber, Peleg, Ru, Surag, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham, who is Abraham. So what's the genealogist doing here? What's the artwork? They've got 10 generations from Adam to Noah, 10 generations from Shem to Abraham, and we're going to see that this genealogy works in groups of 10 and that it's going to cluster them that way. The word 10, we hear it and we think of a number, T-E-N, we think 10, They had E-S-E-H-R, which was a number of 10, but it was also the word for order or law. So there is order to the first 10 generations. There is the first ordered generations from Adam to Noah, and there's the next order of generations. It's a gathering or a collection. So when you see a gathering or collection of order or law, in the Jewish language, that is there. There, are, there is an order of commandments, ten commandments. It is a grouping that they have. They have the Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Those are the three lines, which are basically this groups of people around the earth. We even see this in the New Testament with the three synoptic gospels, kind of written for each of those three groups. But in verse 24, they give you the next ten, and they line it up. Shem, Arfax, Shela, Eber, Peleg, Ru. Sarag, Nahag, Terag, and then Abraham 10. Abraham, they start with Abraham, which is a a word meaning father exalted. So in the the Hebrew, Abba means father. Abraham is Abram, father exalted, who is Abraham, the father of multitudes. And those multitudes include not just the Jewish people, but more than the Jewish people. So the, the stopping to point that out, God has a clear path from A to B and from B to C. What's the next going to look like? And you get to verse 28. The sons of Abraham were Isaac and Ishmael. So again, they're mentioning Ishmael, even though we know they're going to stick with Isaac. Hebrews typically follow Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Here, though, we attend to the brothers of those people. We don't just do the three patriarchs. We also point out their brothers. And this is, again, there's a wider range of conversation. Isaacs of Sarah had the promise of God. Ishmael of Hagar did not, but it's the same family. And they're there. These are their genealogies. And in verse 29, they actually take some time with the people of Ishmael. And they note that here's a whole group of people that populated the earth that were connected to God's plan, even if they didn't follow it. So just that theme keeps coming up. Essentially, these are the tribes that make up the Arabic people in verses 29, 30, and 31. Um, Lots of groups there. A long history of territorialism amongst the people of Ishmael. Conflict and striving, which was prophesied, but we don't even get to that point at this point in the genealogy. They just name the families. The family of Keturah... um, is another whole group. When Sarah died, Abraham took another wife, and that next wife was Keturah. So Keturah, Abraham's concubine, or his second wife, were, and then they list those out in verse 32, and the sons of Midian, which we know are, from, are descend of the Midianites, and they list all of those. All of these were the children of Keturah. So he points out all these different Family groups that are popping out of there. It's important, it's noted, but it's not the focus of the genealogy because in verse 32, the writer tells us what to focus on. So here's all these other families. Don't be distracted by that. Verse 34 And Abraham begot Isaac. And the sons of Isaac were Esau and Israel. Again, we don't just talk about Israel, we talk about Esau and Israel. Doesn't use the word Jacob. And again, the focus Jacob's more of a person, but Israel at this time is the name of a nation. And they know that that's the same thing, but it's interesting that he doesn't say Jacob and Esau. He says Esau and Israel. He puts them in their birth order, not giving Israel prominence in this passage, because again, the focus is on a global attention, not just on Israel. So he notes these things. He drops them. We get the the word begot in verse 34, and we, we don't see the sons of, we see begot. I think that the shifting here for begot is starting with Abraham, which does give some priority to Israel. The word begot here is a different word. It singles it out. It has to do with God's plan when we do this. So Grant's not just the son of Sean, Sean begot Grant. And it's a different way of saying it that's unique to Israel. And it starts as we see that beginning here in this verse. So no Jacob, because this is a national document. This is kind of a source of pride for the the Hebrews. So we do an offshoot of Esau first in verse 35. You get the offshoot of Esau and all the sons of Eliphaz. Notice that it says the sons of here again. Uh, And the sons of uh, the family of Seir. We see a record of Seir is included. And... Why would they include the family of Seir? Like verse 38, the sons of Seir were Lotan. Well, who's Seir born to? And if you look back up at the previous verses, Seir's coming out of nowhere. What they're doing is they're bringing back in a group of people that get tossed in. And again, this is word for word what they did in Genesis. They threw in this family of Seir. The reason this family is important is because the family of Seir is connected because they Um, marry into the family of Esau and become the Edomites. And so he's, again, going around and showing where all of these different groups came from. So the Edomites get a nod, and we're going to see that that's... uh, We'll get back to the story of the Hebrews, but we have quite a few verses here where they lay out all these names, all these places, and they play it out. Notice that it goes back to the sons of. It doesn't use the phrase begot in verse 38 through 42. And then in verse 33, 43, it shifts again. Um, Israel asked for kings, and God said kings aren't the highlight. And they start with David, and they're now defunct. There was a season where Israel had kings. But you know what? Having kings wasn't unique to Israel. And having kings wasn't even original to Israel. In Verse 43, now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. Note the word before, before a king reigned over the children of Israel. Kings were evil before Israel asked for them. And the Edomites did great evil in the land. They, did, they had this idea of a king as one human being ruling over other human beings. And they instituted this practice, which essentially becomes slavery. And it's what God warned Israel about. If you have a person reigning over you, they're going to demand taxes. You're going to be working for that person instead of working for yourself and for the Lord. You're going to put people over you. So to have people rule over other people was a sin that started with Edom, not with Israel. Again, God's plans for the whole earth. So verse 43 becomes important for that message. You got Bela, the son of Beor, and the, name, and the name of his city was Dimna. And now they start noting cities and kings. So these governors. In verse 51, Hadad died also. And the chiefs, the word there for chiefs is governors. They were governors of regions under kings. So you have kings, kings set up governors, everybody works for other human beings. And this chief so-and-so, chief so-and-so, chief this, chief that, ends in verse 53. These were the chiefs of Edom. So they had all these chiefs. They're recorded, they're relevant, they're descendants of Abraham, but God had other plans. He did not work with the Edomites. He didn't work with the people that had kings. So Esau lost the inheritance, but God still blessed him. That's another point to get out of this. E- Esau's failure wasn't in the fact that God didn't expand his family. Esau's family, the Edomites, became very powerful. They ruled over many cities. So God had a plan and still continued to bless Esau, and anyone in the, that would have been a readership of this initially would have seen this many kids with this many cities is a blessed family. So even though the Edomites weren't part of the promise of Messiah, God still let them grow and prosper. So Esau lost the inheritance, but he didn't lose God's favor in some ways. So we can note then that God inspires these records. He wants us to learn from these records. I'm going to keep repeating that for three weeks. Um, These are clear ones. These people retain titles, but their only title is that they were a king and now they're dead. But these are all people, this is like walking through the grave, it's kind of, Every commentator I read at some point said, this is like walking through a graveyard. You got all these people with their names on the gravestones and we don't know anything, but they lived full lives. They had family, they loved, they lost. They had a history that outside of God's plan means very, very little. And it's just a recording at some point. So those that live and die are part of this bigger plan. Esau is now dust, but the writer depends on the reader knowing that God is over all of this And to be something more than dust when we die means a service to God's plan, which is eternal. We are not eternal, but God is. So the degree to which we serve him becomes relevant. You see where that's an argument to leave Babylon and come back and do this new temple construction? Come back and rebuild Jerusalem? Come back and be part of something bigger than yourself. That's an argument. Adam loses Abel and Cain, but God gives him Shem. God's still got a plan despite the mistakes. You got Noah in the ark. You got Peleg dividing humanity. These are references that help people remember what was in Genesis. Remember, Genesis started before the nation of Israel did. God's plan has been working for a long time. These scribes were smart. And by building this genealogy, they're making a not-so-hidden agenda to remind the people of God that the people of God have nothing to do with the kingship. They have to do with... The worship of an almighty God, which happens in the temple building. Let's rebuild the temple. And even though that the Persians weren't about to give them their king back, they could still return to worship. The Israelites in the desert, the reason that Egypt got in trouble with God is because Egypt wouldn't let them worship their God. And Chronicles is giving us these hints back to Genesis to remember that. Finally, Abraham, he's chosen, but then we turn back to Isaac. We've done our detour with Esau's family in chapter 2. These are the sons of Israel. And again, we list them here as a sentence. Reuben, Sibion, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Ashtar. You want to start singing Joseph's coat of many colors, mm-hmm. right? Twelve tribes. And they, they choked these off because every little Jewish kid would be memorizing the tribes of Judah. So they would know these tribes. They would, they would be very familiar with sentence one here, verses one and two. Levi's set apart, Joseph gets halved, and there's two tribes. Uh, but we know that these are uh, where they're at. When we get to chapter 8, we'll deal with um, that splitting or those things. Dan is out of order in verse 1. <laughs> Nobody knows why. You, I invite you to go search the internet and find all sorts of reasons why people think Dan has been moved, none that were apparent or even worth repeating in this Bible study. For some reason, they list Dan out of order. Now, if you're citing the alphabet, you don't think about the order of the letters once you learn the song. So the fact that they move Dan stops you because it doesn't sound right to a Jewish ear. They should be in this order, not that order. So think of it that way. Think of it like them rearranging the alphabet song on one letter just to mess people up. And the only thing I could think of on that is that they want you to stop and pay attention. Twelve tribes. God's plan works through all of them. There's, in, that, in that sense, we have 10 tribes here that are gonna take us from Abraham to Boaz, but the writer pauses here. It's interesting that Abraham, Isaac, and, and um, Israel are going to be highlighted with these kinds of stories, but verse one kinda of cues a new section. So we're going to get, actually, from Abraham to Jesse, there's gonna be 12 generations, um, but from Abraham to Boaz, there's 10 generations. And the writer doesn't include Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in his sets of 10. Some of you are like, who cares? It matters a little bit because they're making, they're setting this genealogy up in groups of 10. And they tape Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they treat them as just one block. The patriarchs. And this is why the Jewish people called them the patriarchs. They're set apart. They're separate. God's promise was made to all three of them because, well... God needed to confirm his promise with more than one human. No one human made up this religion. So his promise and his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the covenant. It's a three-in-one covenant, just like he's a three-in-one God. So it gets treated as one in this genealogy, and that's part of where that thinking comes from. They're set apart. They're a grouping. They're in assembly, all of their own. So Judah goes first when we get to verse 3. He's not born first. We can see that in verse one. He's the fourth born, um, but he's treated as first. And again, that's telling a story in the genealogy. And I just, I don't know why I geek out on this stuff so much. Judah's first because he's the inheritor of the blessing. And it gives his sons here, but it doesn't get into this whole story. We'll get into that in other places, but it's going to go from straight from Judah all the way to David. And it's just kind of, for now, going to set aside all 11 brothers And we're just going to focus on Judah. And so we will come back to those other brothers in chapter 4. We will get them in detail, trust me. Uh, But we're just going to get this line that goes straight from Judah to David here. And so we get there. Um, These three, the Ur, Onan, and Shelah, these three were born to him by the daughter of Shua the Canaanites. Ur, the firstborn of Judah, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he killed him. And when we see those little cues in the middle of a genealogy, the point is, Ur's not the one that inherits. He's firstborn, but he's not the inheritor. Just like Judah's not the firstborn. The The inheritance is a spiritual gift that gets handed down. Tamar and his daughter-in-law bore Perez and Zerah. All of the sons of Judah were five, so it lists all five sons. Talks about Tamar, his daughter-in-law, the wife of Ur er and Onan. They both died, but then remember Tamar came and pretended she was a prostitute, and then her and Judah had a kid, and that's you know, reminding us of that story. But the point is, God had a plan through that story. He worked through Tamar. This is why Matthew includes Tamar in his genealogy, because it's included in the Old Testament genealogy. So in verse 5, he goes straight to Perez, one of these sons. Why? Because he inherits the blessing. So he goes through those. Here's the five sons of Perez in verses 5 and 6. Then the son of Carmi was Achan. Uh, So Achar is... uh, another way to say Achan or pronounce Achan, the troubler of Israel, that reminds us of Joshua 7. So he's taking us right through the Old Testament. This is quite a survey. Joshua 7, Achan, or the the troubler of Israel who transgressed in the accursed thing, the accursed thing was he took loot from battle that was supposed to go to the Lord. God claimed it. The One guy took stuff and hid it in his tent and God said, something's broken. and they, So they say some prayers, they go to the priests, and God says, narrows it down by tribe, narrows it down by family, narrows it down to this one guy and says, what's in your tent? But it, was, it troubled all of Israel. All of the plan of Israel got set off because of one sinner. You can see where that argument plays out. We should all go back to Babylon, and if even one person who's supposed to do this doesn't do what they're told to do, you could be screwing it up for all of us. Don't be a troubler of Israel. Be with Israel. So again, this is guiding them there and in that direction. So verse 8 says, The son of Ethan was Azariah, noting two more offshoots. Um, Ur and Achar both are remembered for their corruption. That's it. God IDs them as bad, and and then it doesn't go on. And I, I always think of genealogies, and when there's any comment after a person, it's either because of their righteousness or because of their wickedness. And you think, you know, when you're dead and gone, what's going to be on your tombstone if you only get a sentence? Is it going to be troubler of Israel or troubler of Michael? Or is it going to be somebody who blessed someone and a gift a gift to the people of God? Verse 9, the sons of Hezron are in there. Um, we're going to see in verse 18 that Chalubai is actually Caleb, kind of the same name pronounced a little differently, like John and Jonathan. Uh, So don't be distracted by that. We'll get to Caleb's family in verse 18. So Hezron goes to Ram, Ram to Abinadab, uh, the leader of the children of Israel, Nashon, Salma begot Boaz, and then we get the story of Ruth. So that little piece of genealogy came straight from the book of Ruth. Because at this point, we're following a family tree all the way to David. Boaz begot Obed, and by the way, we're back to begot because we're in the plan of Messiah now. Obed to Jesse, and he got Eliab, his firstborn, Abinadab. And then we get to verse 15, way down the line. Not the fourth, not the fifth, not the sixth, but the seventh kid was named David. Ta-da! Right? God's plan wasn't one, two, three, four, five, or six. God's plan was number seven. Now think of that when you're doing groups of 10 that are going to add up to 60. Where are we getting excited about things? We get excited when number seven comes around. And so you see this in the Old Testament, this shaping, this molding of history, and the way they structure this is you got these groups of 10 and they're going to add up to 60. And the point is, what's coming next? You guys, we go back and rebuild the temple. We're rebuilding a temple that Jesus is going to walk into. They just didn't know the name Jesus yet but we think the Messiah is coming back in the next 10 generations. We think that's going to be when this happens. This is why when Matthew writes his genealogy, a lot of Jewish people went, whoa, amazing, right? So I think 16 is pretty cool too. Now their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail. So we kind of detour and name some of the sisters here. That's important. And the sons of Zeruiah were Abishai, Job, and Ashael. There's three of them. Those are what are called in the Old Testament, the three. They're the three battle commanders of David. So now we're getting into Israel's history a little bit. Um, they're half sisters, 2 Samuel 17. There's a different father for these girls. Uh, but Abigail, one of the nephew of the three here, also bore Amasa. And the father of Amasa was Jether the Ishmaelite. Those four guys were mighty warriors. They're, they're core leadership in David's army. So you see that this genealogy is not just including the offshoots of Edom and Esau, it includes the offshoots of people that helped the kingdom of God, even if they were children of Ishmaelites. Because again, God's not just working through the Jews. He's working through the Edomites and the Ishmaelites. And later we're going to see the Kenites. These were huge roles in the kingdom. These additions emphasize the community around David. It wasn't just David. Yes, David's wonderful. Yes, he's an image of Messiah. Yes, he's the first king of Israel. But he also had Abishai, Job, Ashel, and Amasa. He had a team of people around him that made him what he was. So why do we go to David? Why the seventh child? Because we have this divine plan that's happening with number seven. Adam to David. As these people are writing about David, it'd be easy to dismiss the kingship entirely because it's gone. Persia's destroyed it. But they don't because there's something important about David that goes beyond the kingship. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Not Israel, the kingdom of this Messiah. And he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, not David's kingdom. So there's a promise that's still hanging out there, that there's a house, a kingdom, a throne, which implies a kingdom of people, a house which is a family, and a throne which is rulership and authority that will last forever. That's why they're looking at David. That's why the seventh son is important. By the way, if you've ever heard the phrase seventh son in the secular world, it comes straight out of David. He was the seventh son. Jeremiah 23, five says a righteous branch, which is Nazar, which is where we get the word Nazarite. Isaiah 11.1 one says that there is a stump that will be cut off and a branch will grow out of it and bear fruit. So there's going to be a shoot of Israel. Israel's going to get destroyed, but the prophets at this point, and they're gathering these prophets' stuff too, David's important because even though the kingship is cut off, there's going to be a branch that grows out of that stump. You ever cut down a tree and you think you're done with the tree, but that root system keeps bearing, and you get 20 maple trees that grow up around the stump? That's what Jesus is like. He's going to come from an unknown family. He's not going to be a, nothing this world recognizes as a mighty tree. He's just going to be a Nazar that pops out of this stump. And so it's important for the Jewish people to track what happens with David because David's the stump that got cut off. The throne is the stump. And we're looking for a, a kingdom, a house, and a throne that gets grown out of that. And so it's important to follow David. The Messiah is still coming. There's still prophecy that's not yet fulfilled. But the whole cutting off part, well, that's been fulfilled. Back to David in chapter 3. For now, we've got a few more families to clean up in the genealogy. Most of the Babylonian exiles were from Judah. So each family is returning, and there's a focus on these different returning families. So what we do in verse 18, this Caleb, the son of Hezron, he's not the child of Jephunneh. He's a friend of Joshua. He's, a, he's a, or not, the, not the friend of Joshua, or courageous hero. He's just this other guy, this other family. So why include these other families? Because Ezra, and I'm just going to say Ezra and his team, are trying to notice and recognize each of the families that came out of Babylon to come back to Israel. And they're including them in the genealogy to include them as part of this plan. So you get this... Caleb, the son of Hezron, right? Not the famous Caleb, again. He had children, too, and they died, and and Caleb took Ephrath, which, by the way, is another name for Bethlehem, as his wife, and they begot people, and they begot people, so this is part of the plan, too. And all of these began to the sons of Macher, in verse 23, the father of Gilead. A key city in the new, in, the, in Israel. And as they're leaving Babylon and going home, there's these big cities that are going to be refilled and repopulated. So this helps them to know. We also got Tekoa in there. That's the city Amos is from. We got Hebron. We got Kiris Jerem. They're naming the cities and the families that go with them so they know where they go settle. When you come out of Babylon and you come back to this land, that's your family's city. This is where your family's from. This is where your family's from, and it helps them organize in a civic way where people are going to go. So these, for us, become fairly dry texts. For them, this was, this was exciting because this was land allocation. When we settled the West in the New World, one of the promises the government made is that if you're willing to take your family out to that land, we'll give you 40 acres and a mule. And they never kept their promise with the mule. But if you could farm that 40 acres and do it, that's how the Midwest got settled in America, the promise of land. So verses 18 through 24 for this family of Caleb, that's the promise of land. He's connecting names and families to cities. That's a big deal. If you come back with us to the Holy Land, you're going to have territory that we need you to repopulate and resettle. You'll get your own land. So otherwise, you get these unknown families, but God wants them in the record, and they're getting acknowledged as other families that came. So you get the family of Jeremiel in verse 25. Here's the sons of Jeremiel, the firstborn of Hezron. They're Ram and Bruna and Oran, and they had another wife in verse 26, and you get this whole list of folks that we otherwise know nothing about. In verse 34, notice that Sheshan had an Egyptian servant whose name was Jarha. Again, they're throwing in these pieces that are not part of the Jewish record. And they're trying to include all these different people from all these different places, that they're all part of God's plan. Another family, otherwise unnoted in the Bible. It makes one wonder what God put these in here for, if not for just to encourage these families to come back with them. Then you get the family of Caleb again, another large family group gets expanded in verse 42. So we're back to that group. Here's all the sons. Here's the families. They bear this. They bore that. We're not using the word begot here because we're not part of the messianic line. But we are part of the line of the people that are helping the Jews. They're going to help rebuild this temple. And so we see a welcoming of people that aren't part of that promised group that are still part of God's plan. I think that's exciting as being a Gentile. I love the idea that even in the Old Testament, we see texts like this where there's a massive inclusion of people that aren't Hebrew as part of God's plan, part of the team. So more descendants in verse 50. Verse 51, Salma, the father of Bethlehem, Haraf, the father of Gator, connecting names to cities. So we get these town leaders. Um, and then in verse 52, there's Kirith Jerem. And we start putting these all the, here. You get the Pothites, the shuthamites the Mishralites, the Zorathites, the Esherites. All we're missing is the Pilothites. Sons of Selma were born in Bethlehem. The Netophalites, Aphroth, Beth Joab, half of the Manahethelites, and the Zorites. You just get all these great names. They sound like a drug commercial and, and late night TV. But here's the families of the scribes in verse 55, like, those guys are important too. They're all part of God's plan. And then at the end of verse 55, just this little note at the end of the chapter, these were the Kenites who came with Hamoth. Who are the Kenites? Kenites are the people that partnered with Israel and became part of them. They were grafted in. Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. And they just, got, they just came along with the Israelites and they're just part of the nation. Well, when they were hauled off to Babylon, it sounds like the Kenites went with them. I'm with you. No matter where you go, I'm with you. You know, and it's like that love that Ruth had, like where, wherever you go, I'll go. And there's the Kenites, just this faithful group of people that serve God's people and give wisdom, advice, work, and help. And here they still are hundreds of years later, still with the Jewish people, still named as part of the record. Foreigners that became part of Judah, that kind to Israel when they came out of Egypt, and they're still with Israel as they come out of Babylon. Amazing story. I think there should be a whole set of historical fiction books about the Kenites. Wonderful, blessed people. Uh, Numbers 24-21. Balaam, kind of the weird prophesied about the Kenites. Firm is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. So the Kenites were even included with God's people in the prophecies of Balaam that God included in the scriptures. Last Last mention of the Kenites, they were with God's people, and now here in the oversight, they're just part of the plan. It's wonderful. Chapter 3, we get back to the family of David. These were the sons of David that were born to him in Hebron. Firstborn, second, then you got Abigail the Carmelitis, she liked candy. The third, Absalom, the daughter of Talmai, Gesher, the fourth, adonijah the son remember when they listed um jesse's kids and it was the first the second the third the fourth the fifth look at what they're doing here they're doing the same thing none of these people were part of the plan the fifth the sixth by his wife eli these were the six born to him in helam so you got this he's got all these kids here and 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 included and you've got these different folks there the the word hegla, egla at the end of verse 3, uh, that's a name change. It's kind of a cruel name change. The name of that person is Macall. Remember he, he married Saul's daughter, Macall. But he changes the word to egla, which means heifer or a big fat cow. So it's not a flattering change of names. Uh, you, you know, and Ithrium by his fat cow mom. So not a kind thing there. It's just kind of harsh. Um, But we do show that there's this idea of these were the six born to him in Hebron look at the focus with verse 4 Focus is going to be well. What about the kids that were born to him in Jerusalem? Again, they're elevating the promise of Jerusalem where this temple is going to be where the name of God will reside So those what happened with David before Jerusalem not as important Um, So no mention of these sons. They're divided off. They're just six sons that don't matter very much no details of the mess, the sin, Absalom trying to take the throne. None of that. Just skipping all of those stories that we saw in Kings. There he reigned seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years. Which one matters more, Hebron or Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem's where he set up camp. These were born to him in Jerusalem. Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Four by Bathsheba or Bethshua, daughter of Emile. So now you get this separate list. You got the six that don't matter, but then there's this group that comes after, this grouping or cluster that comes after. And of them, everybody knows Solomon's the one that matters. What's interesting here is they reverse the order. Do you see that? Solomon was the firstborn of Bathsheba, right? Am I wrong on that, Paul? All right, so they reverse the order on this. And they focus on the royal line. So they put... The sixth that don't matter, but the seventh one is the one that's going to matter, Solomon. And they do some things here. They, it doesn't affect the genealogy specifically, but it does show that there's room for that artistic flavor in genealogies. It shows also that it's not always the firstborn that matters to God. It's the heart of the person that matters to God. And Solomon is the one with the right heart. So in verse 10, we get another sequence and this sequence is going to run us through some people. Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Joram or Jehoram, Isaiah, Joash, Amaziah, Azariah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amon, Josiah, nice and tidy, boom, 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 boom. And then you get the mess. <laughs> the sons of Josiah were Jonathan the firstborn, or Johanan, that's another way to say Jehoahaz. Um, three months in 2 Kings 23. So he's a mess. And then the second is Jehoiakim. Verse 23, he was put there by a Egyptian vassal. At this point, they'd lost the kingship. And then it goes third, Zedekiah. Now it's, Zedekiah is actually the brother of Jehoiakim. And the fourth, Shalom, and the sons of Jehoiakim were Jeconiah, um, which was the second. So, all right, it goes in a weird order. It goes Jehoiakim first, Then Jeconiah became king. Then the brother Zedekiah, the uncle, took over the kingship. So this creates kind of a messy thing. And after this, there's just no king. The authority or even the vassal title of king goes away. So likely there's this Jeconiah, Jehoiah king from 2 Kings 24 is taken off to Babylon, but they leave the brother Zedekiah in the kingship or the vassalship back in Jerusalem. What that means is, the entire line of Zedekiah gets killed off in 2 Kings 25, 7. Now, if you're looking at history, one of the big things is, well, there is no line of David anymore because Zedekiah's family was erased. They killed all of them while Zedekiah was sitting on the throne. The argument of what I would call the mess here is that Jeconiah was hauled off to Babylon. So where he was taken off the throne and another nation put somebody in the vassalship title of king, the real king was Jeconiah that went off to Babylon, of which his family prospers in Babylon, and there's still a family of Jeconiah. The point that they're making in the genealogy is, oh, David's line isn't dead and gone. It's it's widespread and populated during exile. When they killed off all of Zedekiah's family, they might have kinged off, killed off an earthly kingship, but they didn't kill off the inheritance. In the same way that when Esau gave his inheritance over for some red, red soup, that didn't kill the inheritance, it just shifted or moved it. And the earthly setup of both the Egyptians, the Babylonians, to call somebody king of Egypt, that wasn't necessarily destroying the kingship, that was earthly decisions messing with it. So we follow the kings into exile with Jeconiah, and you get to the family of Josiah Um, This means brother Zedekiah dies, but the sons of Jeconiah and Zedekiah live on after the fall of Judah in the end of Kings. So these are non-Davidic things. And until 1948, no one takes authority in the Palestine that's a Jewish person. So that earthly rulership didn't continue or get reestablished until 1948, not long ago. Verses 17 through 24. You get Jeconiah, the, the sons, verse 17, and the sons of Jeconiah were Asher. There's no were there in the Hebrew. It's just Jeconiah, Asher. And the word Asher means prisoner. So the sons of Jeconiah, prisoner, Sheltiel, his son, Malachim, Patagai. So the way in my translation it reads, you could think that Asher is one of the sons, and it's not. It's just saying, now that Jeconiah is a prisoner, here's his line. And it very clearly puts a highlight on Jeconiah's line. So you got Sheltil, Pedaian, verse 19, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the, king, the the guy that's going to come back with the exiles and help reestablish the temple. Then you get um, Hananiah, verse 21. Verse 22 is Shechaniah. Verse then the sons of Shemaiah, 23, Neriya, verse 24, Elioeniah. So you have this line of kings and they're following them even well after the return to Israel during the time of Ezra, showing either that this was gathered together after the temple was established or that they added those names in as they continued to get added because the temple records wanted to track the line of David. So verse 24 catches them up to the current day. Of which of these there is a number 10 that's unknown. So we get seven. One wonders who's coming next. The point there, God's still at work. It's not clear what's going to happen there. So we have 10 generations that are counted in this set with that dangler. So you got 10 generations from Adam to Noah, 10 generations from Shem to Abraham, 10 generations from Judah to David, two sets of 10 from Solomon to Zedekiah, and 10 generations from Jeconiah to the return of Israel, in which case we get this list of Davidic families. We don't know where the next one's coming from, but here's the entire genealogy of everybody. We're just going to include all of it. So this becomes the tradition of the Jews to keep track of these records. They're looking for Messiah. This is why Matthew started his gospel with a genealogy. This is why Luke starts his gospel with a genealogy which we're going to start on next week, Sunday morning. <laughs> like We're going to be in genealogies here for the next little bit. So for our numbers junkies, what we just got was 60 generations all nice and tidy from Adam to the return into Israel. Uh, six being the number of man, Jesus coming would then be with the next group of people. They believed Messiah was coming with the next set, with those next groups. Matthew is going to use this little odd thread of Sheltiel to go all the way to Joseph. He's going to track using this genealogy. He's going to track that tradition using the temple records, and he's going to put it, be putting it there. So what comes next? We get the full initial record of all 12 tribes that come back from Babylon to Egypt, right? And we are stopping to remind ourselves that we're cooperating with God, but God's got a plan. I'm going to do chapter four tonight just to dig us into that, and we'll do all of the rest of them next week. If you show up, I know that you love the word of God next week. Honestly, the next week's the week where I'd be like, what, we, what else do we got going on? It's going to be more genealogies with Sean. and But I, that's where I think sometimes it's just perseverance. Dang it, I'm going to sit through it, and I'm going to get through this. For chapter 4, the sons of Judah start in verses 1 through 7, and then they add this narrative here, and I want to pause on the narrative because it's kind of different. Verse 9, now Jabez, which means sorrow, Now sorrow was more honorable than all his brothers. And his mother called his name Sorrow Jabez, because I bore him in pain. What a horrible name to give your kid. And Jabez called on God of Israel saying, oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me and that you would keep me from evil, that I might not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. Just a beautiful little prayer thrown right in the middle of the genealogies. It's almost like when you look at a, uh, a, a gilded Bible, or what do you call those, where they've got the great artwork along the side, and they, they have these beautiful things along the text, what, illuminated Bibles? Yeah, it's almost like they put this poem in here. And what's the poem saying, and why would it be in the middle of a genealogy? What does what this prayer? So it's the prayer of Jabez. If you were around in, what was it, the 80s, the 90s? It was one of the big trends in the Christian community, the prayer of Jabez. I wouldn't say the Christian community. It was more like the Oprah Winfrey community. The idea is if you prayed this prayer like a mantra, you'd be rich and, and happy. And all you got to do is just keep saying this prayer. You know, get a little rosary and just keep praying it on your beads. And somehow or another, God's your puppet. And if you just say it enough times, he will bless you. And I don't think that, when I just read it at face value, I don't think that's what Jabez is praying for. The guy's named Sorrow. And his prayer is that he doesn't want to cause people pain. He doesn't want to live up to that namesake. The prayer is, Lord, help me be a blessing to people. And help me to just not be what I was born as. Jabez called on the God of Israel, implying that maybe Jabez wasn't even a Hebrew. He just called on the God of Israel. He didn't call on his God or anything like that. Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me that you would keep me from evil, that I might not cause pain. Why does he want blessing? He wants blessing so he doesn't get into trouble. So that doesn't sound like financial blessing to me. That sounds like just the blessing of not being a curse to the people around him, like he was to his own mother, who named him after that. Help me, Lord, to not be what I was born into. Help me to be something new. And just this beautiful prayer, if you pray like that, It's not a guarantee that you're going to get a new Ferrari. It is a guarantee that you have the right heart towards God. God, I'm not what my name, I was born with this name, give me another name. Help me to be a blessing, not a sorrow to the people around me. What a beautiful thing. So likely the prayer of Jabez is included because there's a large maybe Babylonian family that aligned with Israel and came with them to the Holy Land. And so the writers put this prayer of Jabez in there because the territory was enlarged and it was a really large group of Babylonians that decided to come back with the Israelites. So most commentators, most most biblical experts believe, given the context, that's why this prayer is in here. But there's no genealogy because they're Babylonians. They don't tune into those kinds of things. Beautiful thing, that I might not cause pain, the prayer to be a blessing to other people. So here's this guy just coming back, As an argument to come back to Israel, this person just wants to be a blessing. One way you can be a blessing is pick up and leave Babylon and come back to Jerusalem and help us rebuild the city. Don't be a curse to the world. Be a blessing to the world. Look, Jabez and his family, that's what he prayed for. And now he's coming with us to be a blessing to the world. So in all likelihood, you have this Jabez that came with and and was just a blessing to the Israelites. Verse 11 goes on with more names, but now we're begotting people again, right? These people are part of the plan. Why are they part of the plan? Because they're coming back to help rebuild the temple. So this is how you too can be part of the plan is be one of the people that come back. So you go all the way through verse 23 and you've got this kind of ongoing listing there of of these folks um, still in the line of Judah. This, This family of Judah is the largest of them. Um, verse 24 is the second son of Judah Simeon uh, and it goes through their line and all their family groups and how, how they've grown as a group of people. Um, Simeon's listed second because they were within the tribal lands of Judah. Remember Simeon's cities were all in Judean territory. Uh, there's a commentary here of showing why the sittings are cities were of dwelling. So with Simeon you just get city names starting with Beersheba verse 28. Big famous city Ziklag that's where at the end of verse 28 Ziklag's where David and his men's family were when they sided with the Philistines and remember Ziklag got attacked and all the women and children were taken and they went and took them back so you, again naming these cities that are there they were the cities until the reign of David the villages were there for the Simeonites here's a list of all those villages and the people that were in charge of those verse 38 They're mentioned by name, the leaders and their families, and their father's house increased greatly. So you just see this idea that these people were blessed. They were blessed in the land, and they continue to be blessed. So that goes all the way through the end of chapter 4, where you get to, um, they are there and they dwell there to this day. In other words, after they defeated the Amalekites, those cities have continued to be populated by Hebrews. So remember when the Babylons took away the Hebrews? They took away the ruling class. But they left a large population of Hebrews back in the land. So here's another argument that chapter 4, I think, indirectly says. If you leave Babylon and come back with us and rebuild Jerusalem, you're going to reunite with old family. This is like Americans going back to Europe to try to touch base with their old family members. right? It's only been three generations. So hey, if you go back, you can meet your... Grandfather's family, their brothers and sisters, and they're still there to this day. They haven't left. They're still in these cities. You can go back and see your family. And it'll be really cool because you'll see like personality traits that are somehow the same after three generations, traditions that are the same. They're going to say they have the same body shape, and you're going to see people that look oddly like you when you go back to these cities. Come back to Jerusalem. You can be a blessing. You're going to run into old family. There's land, territory, and cities with your name on it. You can see the arguments building with the genealogy if if you're looking for them. And not only that, you can be part of the whole set of begots, not the son ofs. You can be part of God's plan in getting the worship of God reestablished on the earth. That's the most important thing. All of the themes are laced into these genealogies. We'll pick up again next week in chapter four, and I'm hoping we might even get through chapter 10. So I'm shooting for six chapters next week. In that case, don't miss it, because people that miss this week and next week, Like they're going to come back, we're going to be on chapter 11, and then they're going to be like, dang, I just missed 10 chapters. I only thought I was gone for a couple weeks. Holy moly. So we're going to take a huge chunk of these and get through them, in part because we've dug into them deeply when we did Genesis and Kings. So we're going to move fairly quickly through these. And the other reason for that is they're just not interconnected in other places in the Scriptures. Um, this is a listing of families that came back to the Promised Land. Um, We should walk away knowing this, and I'll leave you this last thought. If God knows this much detail about people that were coming back to the Holy Land, how much does he pay attention to your life? Because he's got a book somewhere in heaven that's got your family name in it, that's got your people in it. And either your family and your people are those that were wicked or those that were redeemed and turned to the Lord God Almighty. And especially as we got young people starting new families right now, how will your family be remembered? what kind of family will it be? And where will you be in the records of God when it's all said and done? Because he keeps the records. And there's a book called the book of life. And in it are the list of all the people that have chosen to follow the Lord. And when we get to the judgment theme, we'll be looking in the Lamb's book of life to see if your name's there or not. And my hope is that everybody I know is in that book because I like everybody I know. And I want them to be in heaven so you can see that I have pet bears when you go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Just going to keep coming back to that. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the blessing. We thank you that you're making a new heaven and a new earth and you're creating a place for us. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you've made that place that you invite us to. But there's a voluntary call, an all call for people to come and be there and, and, and be part of the kingdom of God. And Lord, we want to be in your kingdom. We want to be on the list. We want to be recorded on the scrolls as people that willingly left this world to go into that world. And we left behind us the old world, even in prosperity, even in a thriving Persia. These people picked up, left everything, and became pioneers and settlers in a land that had been left destitute. And they rebuilt it and they made it flourish and bloom and prosper, and they're doing the same thing today. Lord, we want to be there too. We know that all of this is an image of a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, for which you've given us all an invitation to come, with all the same reasons that we can be part of your plan, that we got family waiting for us there, that we got generations we can go back and connect with in heaven. Uh, All the same reasons, Lord, in, in, in that we have a place waiting for us. It says, "You go to your you make." There's your father's house has many rooms. You're making a space for us, Lord. I want to see what my room looks like. So, in this, as we read through this, Lord, help us to not forget that this is part of our life too, and help us to understand that all of this is here for us so that we can hear your call to come into your kingdom. So, Lord, I pray each person here today, each person that's listening to this, Lord, that they consider what kingdom they're in and who they'll be with. And when God's people are on the move, who are they marching with and who are they walking with? And Lord, we just pray for that in the hearts of the, that are turned to you. We pray for our state and our country. Lord, we pray that people's hearts turn to you. We know that's the real challenge for our country and our people right now. May the ways of righteousness become desirable to our culture once again. May you wake up a stirring of people that want goodness and righteousness and law and order in our country. May they turn to the Lord God Almighty for that guide of what is right and what is wrong. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I hope...